How's everybody doing? I love it. 11.15, there's not, a, it's not as many people here as there was at 9, but y'all are just as loud. So I like that. That's good. I like the interactive, the interactive 11.15 service, man. It's great. Man, if you've got your Bible, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be also in that 2 Timothy passage we were in last week. If you weren't with us, we are in our Compass series uh, and it's one that I really, I told my wife this morning, come in, I said, we could probably stay in this one for a while just because there's a lot to it. If you weren't here last week, it'd be good to go back and, and either watch it on YouTube or um, do the, the iTunes um, thing and, and uh, listen to it because it really gives you a picture, especially if you, you know, you're new here and you're trying to figure out, okay, what is Ocean City Church about? There's a lot of things from last week and in this week that will give you some of the foundational ideas of why it is that we do what we do. Like, you know, obviously God exists outside of the walls of the church, and there's so many things that are going on in your life um, as followers of Jesus or people that are uh, trying to figure out their faith outside the walls of the church. But why is it that we do what we do? Why is it that we are building a compass, a worldview, and a theological compass as we move out into the world. And last week, that's where we were. We're going to, get, we're going to cover two more points of the four points I men- mentioned last week. So those that are OCD and missed last week, you're already thinking, well, is he going to go back over those points? Like, I need to write that down in my notebook. Um, yeah, we'll go back through them very quickly, and you'll be able to write some notes. But we won't do it in the detail, obviously, that we did uh, last week. But we talked last week that we live in a world that does not have this, you know, we've got just... There's diversity everywhere of thought, um, and, and you might think there's, there's really just two thoughts, the country split in half. There's this ideology, this ideology, this political movement, and this political movement, but really, people exist on a whole plane of different thoughts. There's so many different personalities. Every person was created uniquely by God, and those are the things that tend to develop our worldview. And I gave the definition of a worldview, and I want to give it again because this is how we're kind of connecting compass to worldview because they're, they're really utilized and leveraged the same way in the human mind. A worldview is a system of beliefs that answer the philosophical questions of God, man, and the cosmos, which influences, this is the important part, this is what it does and how a worldview or a compass affects us. It influences how a person relates to and interacts with self, others, and the world around them. In other words, it gives direction to it. It, it shows us where we're going to go when, when we're answering questions about, about life, about relationships, about marriage, about politics, about ideology, about our own identity, about sexuality, about gender, all of the things that are popping up in our culture that, that everybody's got a different answer to. And everybody's got their own truth. It's like, you live your truth, and I'm going to live my truth. You know, you live your, your life, and I'm going to live my life. I'm going to build and create my value and identity, and you're going to create and build your identity. So we live in that type of world, which I related to, you know, the world over 2,000 years ago. And when you see what the Apostle Paul's saying in Ephesians chapter 4, which is where we're going to be, he's dealing with the same type of culture. It's, it's amazing how the Bible remains to be relevant, but there's, there's two reasons for that. One, because God is a miracle worker and his, his word is living and active and it doesn't return void. It's always going to be valuable for us. But two, people will always be people. And we live on a planet where sin still exists. The penalty of sin, if you're a follower of Jesus, has been annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ. But the power and existence of sin is still here. And so we have to navigate that. 
and we need a compass. We need a corrected lens. We need a corrected worldview. But it, it gets difficult, and I talked about this last week, with the diversity of human beings because we all value different things. Like we have things that we lean towards because of our own flesh and because of the way that God created us. You've got relational people. I've noticed this in pastoring over the last 15 to 18 years. Relational people, they're going to spend their time, obviously, with people, having conversations with people, caring about people, being compassionate with people, wanting to know what's happening with other people, in rooms with other people, being around other people. That's where they get their energy. You know, they're probably a two or a seven on the Enneagram. You know, somebody that knows it better will probably throw out some other numbers. But that's nine. A nine does love people, don't they, right? So you've got all these, this, the, the relational people. But what I've realized over the years with relational people is they have messy cars. Like, they just do. Like, if you go and you find somebody that's high on the relational scale and you go look at their car, there's like, you know, 15 Jimmy John's cups all in the back. I mean, that's just what happens. Because, and it's not that they don't want a clean car or a clean house or the laundry done or the things. It's that... If they have to sacrifice to stay two more minutes with somebody that's telling you something important about their life other than hit that schedule where they've got to go take the car through the beach's car wash or you know, go home and clean the house and tighten things up and get things squared away for so-and-so room- roommates come home or husband comes home, wife comes home, they're going to stay with the person. They're going to spend time with that person at Sago, at Bold Bean, or wherever they're having coffee with them or wherever they're engaged with people, they're going to... They're going to put their value and they're going to put their energy there and other things are going to suffer as a result of that. And then on the other side of the scale, side of the scale you've got some, some more type A people that are organized and you're probably going to leave the conversation. You have strategies in how to cut conversations short. Like you have ways, like exit strategies. You, you probably tell your wife or your husband, like, all right, we've got a special word that we're going to say and that means it's time to go because we got to I'm cleaning the garage today, and that's going to happen. Like, that is not, not going to happen. I mean, the cords do this. I just bought the thing on Amazon. You can do the windy thing. We're going to hang it up. It's going to be great, and it's going to make me really happy. And you like me when I'm happy, so let's have an exit strategy. And you see those people have clean cars. They have clean houses. They've, you go into their house, and it makes you feel guilty if you're relational. You're like, oh, why can't I do this? It's because you love people. And that's not that one's any worse than the other. We, we all need each other here on planet Earth and especially in the church. I mean, you've got, when we talk about Ephesians chapter 4, it says we need to speak to people in the world around us and to each other in the church with what? With truth and love. But often we have people that, that probably rank higher on each end of that scale. You've got love people that really struggled through 2020 because it was like, I just want people to get along, and they didn't. And you've got, that's just kind of the world that we lived in. And then you've got truth people, and you've got, sometimes you've got the extreme where somebody just, it's all love and there's no truth, and it's just, I just want to make sure that we have no conflict, I want to make sure that we all get along, no matter what you believe about the Bible, no matter what you believe about what it says, I think we can, can work with that. Well, well, I just, actually, we're just not, not going to talk about these particular things in life, because to love people good, we're going to have to move in this direction. Then you've got truth people who are all truth, and they don't have the love, they've just got the truth bombs that they drop, they're really great on Facebook and on Instagram, so, Bam, I've just got a graphic with nine words that make you feel awful about yourself, but it is true. And that's the type of people you've got on the truth scale. Not always, but people are somewhere on that continuum. But we all, God created us certain specific ways. And in the church, I said this last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you've got people that are gifted in different ways. You've got people that God uses in different ways. And he, 
uses the example of the human body in multiple places in Scripture, the Apostle Paul does. You know, you got people that are hands. The hands are not going to do a whole lot without the eyes. Or the feet, and the feet need the eyes too. They need the hands. They need to be able to get places and do things once they get there. I mean, you, we have people that are diverse. But how do we all of a sudden come together and do this thing that the Apostle Paul's talking about, which is have a unity in the faith? It's like great that we have diversity. Great that we can all leverage one another's gifts with Jesus Christ as the head that leads the church. But how in the world do we have unity of thought? Which almost sounds cultish, but that's what the Apostle Paul's saying here. He's saying we have to think the same way about God because God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we need to have a good idea about who he is. And we need to understand the word of God, which also, it, it you know, Grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever, right? So we need, we, theology diversity is not a good thing. And this is where the pastor gets emails because people believe that, hey, it's okay where, to, for us to think and believe differently. And on some levels and secondary issues, I would agree. And we'll probably talk about that as we get into some of our smaller classes here. And we talk about that in city groups. There are different ways. There's people that believe different about certain things when it comes to Christianity that I know I'm going to see in heaven. It's just a reality. But you also have things that are foundational, like Dan was talking about as we were talking about what's coming up. Things that we, we should not have diversity in when it comes to who God is and what he's accomplished in the cross, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, the implications of the cross. There shouldn't be a diversity of thought when we think about what it means that Christ's blood was poured out on Mount Calvary and that he rose from the dead, the implications for you, the implications for the entire human race and those that make the decision to follow Jesus. So how do we navigate through a culture that claims there's no absolute truth? How do we do it? And we jumped into this passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul wrote it in around 62 AD. He was in a Roman prison trying to lean the, the church at Ephesus, who Timothy was the bishop there, into this creating of a biblical compass, a worldview, so that they could navigate the tumultuous type of culture that they were in in the Roman Empire that was polytheistic. Sexuality and gender were a, a big issue in their day. They had four political parties that were all intertwined with religion. I mean, it was even more messy than we are today. And he's saying, how do you have a foundational compass? This is how. And we used the examples last week of what the Apostle Paul you know, was saying in Ephesians chapter 4, saying, hey, you don't want to be tossed about by the wind and the waves. We use the the illustration of a jellyfish. You don't want to be a jellyfish. Jellyfish just shows up on our shores, not because it wants to, but because it, it has no choice. It just goes with the flow. It has to go from the south to the north in the current. I mean, it's got a little thing where you can push itself around, but it has to bow. It actually becomes its environment. It's 99% water. Dolphins, they leverage their world. They can ride the waves. They can do the things that they want to, but in, in, in an instant, they can turn and go against the current. They can go and defy what, what's happening in their world and in their culture to find food, to protect the young and the less mature that they travel with. You don't want to be a jellyfish. You want to be a dolphin. That's what Ephesians 4 kind of leads us towards. So the Apostle Paul, as we said last week, he said, so Christ gave to do this, to create this worldview, this compass to help us be grounded he said, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So you've got, 
the church and the leadership in the church, the people that are going to be teaching the Bible. And he did it to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach what he says here, unity in the faith. This is theological unity, unity in the faith, what we believe, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, what we believe about who God is, who Jesus is, and become mature, meaning we know more and more, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, becoming more like Christ, because knowing who he is will definitely benefit by the power of the Spirit in becoming more like him. So let's go through what four questions that we we are going to answer the two that we've already answered and the two that we're going through. I'll go through it real quick. What threatens the Christian worldview or Jesus compass today? Now, I said last week, we immediately probably think, you know, of, of certain things, but our biggest threat to the Jesus compass, the compass we should have, the theological unity that we should have in the church is us and sin. We are the, we are the biggest problem because we tend to lean towards pseudo biblical compasses, things that support what we believe, things that support our politics, our ideology, what we believe about X or what we believe about Y, we tend to create and make cases for, and we flip the filter in the way that we navigate difficult issues like gender and sexuality and marriage and money, raising kids, you know, where, you know, all kinds of different things. And I showed this graphic last week. We tend to put the Bible and what we believe through our cultural and our what we want, our own desire filter. So culture and our desire filter what we believe. What I want in life and the culture that I live in so that I fit in this culture, what I've learned from this culture, what I've absorbed from this culture. I take the Bible, I take all the stuff, and I put it through my own culture. And then I get out the other side, I get... You know, my life and my own truth, what I want, you know, what I want to do, what will benefit me, because we tend to do that. And we're real crafty with it. We'll, we'll use and leverage the Bible to support our own truth. We'll use and leverage the Bible to make what we do, how we live, however that is, support what we are doing. This is an upside down and a backwards filter. We do not want the cultural self-defined worldview compass that tells us what the Bible says. Like we decide, does the Bible fit into my world? I don't know. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. I think this passage in scripture we need to interpret a completely different way because this is the identity that I've chosen and this doesn't fit in. That's backwards. This is the way that we should do it. If you flip the compass around, we put everything through the biblically developed worldview that the apostle Paul is talking about in most of the epistles. He does this. He creates a biblical worldview based on the gospel, based on the word of God, based on the power of the Holy Spirit that's raised you from death to life, setting your mind and your heart away from the things of this world and heavenward that would filter things like marriage, that would filter things like identity, that would filter things like how we spend money, parenting, what schools we want our kids to be engaged in. If they engage in schools, how do we navigate the culture that they're in every time they cross the threshold of a public school? All of those things, money, any decision that you make, how we operate inside these walls as a church and outside goes through the Bible goes through the power of the Holy Spirit, goes through the structure that God has given us in the church. And outside of that, there's the life and truth that Jesus wants to lead us towards. 
And it's the theological unity, the unity of faith that he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 4. So that's what threatens the Christian worldview is our upside down compass that's created by our own sin and our own flesh. We all tend to do that. So what is the foundational building block of our compass? Well, initially, if you immediately ask that question, people will always come back and say the Bible. But I said last week, it is salvation itself. It is surrendering to Jesus. Because without the surrender to Jesus, then the Bible won't matter over time. It's not that the Bible, the Bible is beneficial for Christians and non-Christians alike. It never returns void. It's always valuable. It always can teach you something. But the gas tank will run out if you haven't been, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, the Bible will just be a moral compass at best. It will lead you to moral deism, which will leave you in the same place. You'll be just as sinful, just as idolatrous, and just as lost, and just as empty going in that direction. But salvation is what we need. We need to surrender everything. We need the reshuffling of the deck where everything that we thought that we wanted, everything that we thought would rescue us, everything that we think would save us, the good family, the good spouse, the nice cars, the nice job, the money that we need, the safety that we need, the retirement that we've put away for, the stock that we've all put in GameStop because we know that's a wise decision. All of those things have to be released. Our hands have to open them up. And just like we sang today, all of it laid at the feet of Jesus. Not that he's just going to all light it all on fire and say it's invaluable. It's that the shuffling of the deck, it's just Jesus needs to be at the top. He's the most, all my life we sang, all my life. And I, I think all that I love, or all, all, I, all my love, all my love, all my love we sang, right? I think about all I love, like all the things that I love, you can have it all. All, all that I love, all that I love, all that I love, you can have it all. I don't know what you're going to do with it. I don't know if you'll leave it in my hands to steward it. I don't know if it's going to go away. I don't know if I'm going to have to sacrifice that to run after you, to be the ambassador out in the world that I'm going to be. But you get to decide, not me. It's handing over control away from yourself. It's becoming dependent once again on God. Because in the Garden of Eden, what they wanted was independence. And what we want as sinful people is independence. And we live as in individual people, living our individual lives. And the burden of having to create our own value crushes us. The burden of having to create our own identity crushes us. And Jesus wants our, our burden to be light. And he says, give it back to me. Lay it all at my feet. I can take it on. I can take all your sin, I can take all your brokenness, I can take all your wants, all your desires, I can take the control that you thought would give you freedom of your life, and I can take that, and I guarantee you I will lead you to life. That has to happen first for the compass to be reimagined and restructured by the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation and surrender, not just church life. So that was last week. What threatens the Christian worldview? Our sin and brokenness, the upside-down compass that we have, and then what is the foundational building block, our salvation. And then we're going to cover these two today. How do we continually protect our compass? And then how do we humbly use our compass in a world of different compasses? That's a good one, because we develop this biblical compass. The church is viewed 
as kind of an outside in. Like everybody's, it's either you're a believer or not. And then there's other people that are looking going, well, these are the people that think they're better than me. These are the people that think they've got it all figured out. They're all cultish. They all believe the same thing. They all vote the same way. They all have the same ideology. They all kind of look the same. They all, all these things. And then the rest of the world thinks it's us against them and that we're kind of trying to figure out how we fit in to the culture that we live in. How do we, and we're supposed to be the ambassadors that carry the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. We're inviting anyone and everyone into this beautiful unending ocean of grace that comes through Jesus alone. How do we do that when people are looking at us and our compass and thinking it's ridiculous what you think about marriage, what you think about sexuality, what you think about gender, what you think about how to live life, what you think about schools and how to educate our, our, our kids, what you think about all of these things. is you, You're just weird Christian people. How do we do it, right? So number three in these, these, this list of four questions how do we continually build and protect our compass? So we've got to build this thing. Like God's got to build it in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it is something that we do as human beings. We want to have what the Apostle Paul's talking about is unity in the faith. And there's clues all in that passage of how he expects the church to do it. Starts in verse 11 where he talks about it's built on the apostles and the prophets, which he's talking about the word of God and then the pastors and evangelists that are going to be stewarding what the apostles and the prophets and the people in the Old Testament, the things that God divinely wrote through them. He's saying, you need all of these things. But the first thing I think we have to know and be aware of, at least in our list today, is we have to know the truth about the fire hose of exposure to information that we live in. We have got to know this truth because we passively absorb things that we don't even know that we're absorbing. We passively, and there, there's not a, a inside like devious sense of, I feel like I'm going to sin today, so I'm going to go you know, get on my phone. There's, there's a lot of benign things that we do when we're watching TV, when we're watching the news, when we're looking at Instagram or we're on Facebook, but we have to understand the amount of exposure. And the, what's interesting is the Apostle Paul talks about this, like long before people, like now we're, there's like specials, you know, on Netflix, you know. What's the, uh, the, the Netflix special on all the people? Social Dilemma, right? Which tells you about there's a specific type of thing that happens to you and me when we get on the internet and they do it to keep you on. Do you know what it's called? Anybody? Like there's, a, there's, a, there's something that our brain does and moves towards that they're feeding into. It's called confirmation bias, which means we, we confirm and, and affirm the things that line up with what we already believe, and we reject the other stuff. So what does the Apostle Paul say to Timothy when he says, this is what's going on in your culture. You need to watch out for it and see if, see if it sounds anything like us. He says, there'll come a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Oh, that can't be us. I know that's not, that's not us at all. Um, instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers. And I, I, it's easy to insert that. They'll gather around them a great number of teachers. Information, podcasts, magazine articles, Facebook posts, you know, whatever. I mean, just, put, just fill in all where, what our teachers are today, what our influences are today, and where it comes from, what news channel we watch. They'll gather around them teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And the social dilemma talks about this thing called confirmation bias. See if this sounds anything like 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Confirmation bias is the tendency to process information by looking for, 
In other words, what, what do my itching ears want to hear? Or interpreting information that is consistent with one's existing beliefs. In other words, I'm going to lean towards, run towards, collect, confirm my beliefs, and move towards the things that I want to hear, the things that make me feel good, the things that confirm what I believe, the things that confirm that I am right and the rest of these wingnuts are wrong, right? Because we like to elevate ourselves above other people. So our, our ideology is the right way and everybody else believes the wrong way. That's confirmation bias. And the Apostle Paul says, watch out for this. People will lean, they'll reject what you're teaching and they'll lean towards something that they create called their own truth. And they'll confirm it over and over again. Their itching ears will collect that information. He says they'll gather, they'll gather it. They'll gather these teachers, these podcasts, these, these things that influence them to say and make them feel good about what they believe, about their ideology, about the political candidate that they supported. All of those things. The Apostle Paul and God himself always in front of our culture and what he knew was coming down the pike. It was happening then and it's happening now. We have to know about the unbelievable onslaught of information and what it does to us. Now, that stuff usually comes in the form of our cell phones. Look at the statistics on how much time we spend on the cell phone. This is crazy. This is daily. I mean, the percentages, just because I was thinking, I, mean, I don't spend more, like collectively, more than a couple hours. I'm in the 16th percentile. But most of the world, if you, if you take all these statistics and you look online, the, the one that you find most is the average American spends 3.5 hours just on the phone. This isn't like in front of a computer, collected with that, in front of a TV. Like It's 3.5 just in FaceTime on the phone, like looking at, looking at the phone. 3.5 hours. So do you want to look and see how much time we spend reading our Bible? I'm not going to put that one up there. I just want to see your face like, oh, wow, this is going to get really sad. But it's, it's incredible how much of our life is, is in this. And this right here is not saving anyone. I mean, there's some things you can find on your phone that are great, but is that what is it? We're, we're all in the Bible out 3.5. That's what it is. We're in the Bible, Bible gateway, 3.5 hours a day. So... It's the, the top 10% of the people that are on their phones, which would be the younger generation, it says that they have, like, I don't remember how many, I have it written down here somewhere. Oh, they, on average, 5,427 touches on their mobile phone daily, the top 10% of, of cell phone users. 5,427 times. I mean, I'm I just doing this right here on anything. I was just thinking, it's take me a while. I mean, that's 10 right there. I mean, I just, how in the world? We need something. We need something that overrides that. We need something that stands in the gap to lead us to truth and away from the own truth, the confirmation bias that we create that flips our compass and our filter. We need something that overrides our feelings. We need something because if we're, as human beings, I said this last week, we need something in place that stands outside of our emotions because our emotions change every minute. They change every hour. I mean, the heart is deceitful above all things, it says in Scripture. But we're told what? Follow your heart. Follow your heart. You follow your heart, girl. That guy, he is so cute. Follow your He is going to be the death of you. I mean, that guy, if you know anything, right? Follow your heart. Follow your gut. 
I mean, I'm so glad that's one of those things that's borne itself out in culture, that us following our heart leads us to death. I mean, we do the dumbest. And in the moment, there's things that we do and we know we're looking at something and our flesh is so strong in that moment and the spirit's so weak. We're like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do it. I, I mean, I don't care that my marriage is going to be destroyed. That This is just, this, I'm just I, you can't control the flesh in that moment. And that's the heart. That's following the heart. And it leads to destruction. We need something that will stand forever. We need something that will be foundational forever. We can't trust the filter of the heart because it changes. I'm angry one minute, sad one minute, cynical another minute, happy and joyful another minute. The Bible doesn't change. Jesus doesn't change. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. That's what we need to lean into. That's what won't be ashes at the end of the day. The name of Jesus and the word of God. But just to say, okay, we need to be aware, not passively, but actively of the culture that we live in and the information that's coming at us. But we have to have the foundation of, of scripture. So I can't just toss you all the Bible and say, all right, go build your compass. I mean, it's it's, a, it's the Bible's, you know, it's small. You know, it's easy to read Leviticus. It's, fa it's fantastic. Um, good read. Uh, no, that's, that's not the way that the Apostle Paul's even talking about it. It's not the way that he's even mentioning it. First, we have to have our view of the Bible. We have to know and understand collectively if we're going to have unity of the faith, how do we view the Bible? And there's so many different views of the Bible. I'll, talk, I'll just say three. One is the Bible's you know, has no validity whatsoever. It's allegorical, it's literature, but it's not really connected to anything. It might have some, some good moral things in there, like Thomas Jefferson cut all the other stuff out and said, yeah, Jesus said some cool stuff. That's, that's one view. And then there's a trickier view, which is called authoritative, which means we don't, I don't believe the Bible is completely true. It's authoritative mostly, but there's, there's, there's plenty of errors that we have to navigate. We got to navigate some things in the Bible where we have to figure out what it means or what mistake was made or what they were thinking at the time. And there's some things that maybe we can pull out. But it's authoritative mostly. When, when we get to the gospel, and I do know people that I'm positive are going to be in heaven that don't believe that the Bible is without error. They believe it's authoritative but has errors. And then there's another view, which is the inerrancy of Scripture, meaning the Bible doesn't have any errors, that it's all inspired by God and the people that wrote it were inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit. The collection that we have in the current biblical canon is the one that is God's word. Now, that is the view that we hold here at Ocean City Church. And there's, a, there's multiple reasons for that. But if you, and, and that doesn't account for translative errors. Translating up from Koine Greek in the New Testament and Hebrew in the Old Testament, there's, there could be things that are a little misunderstood when it finds its way to English. I mean, there's just, it, there is. But we're in a, an age, we're lucky to be in an age and in a country where we've got uh, a lot of comparative translations and ones that have become extraordinarily accurate in the way that they look at the Word of God. So um, we, we're, we're kind of in a, in a good place. Now, that doesn't mean that you read the Word of God and everything is like when, you know, it's just like in a conversation when somebody says, you scared me to death. You didn't actually die, right? I mean, people get that weird about translating the Bible. Like there's statements like that in the Bible where people are using that type of language. 
And that's just, you have to be, there's, there's a within reason and there's a, and an intent in which we read the Bible. Of course, even though we believe the Bible is inerrant, we have to understand the intent in the conversations that are taking place, the, the narratives that are being told. We have to understand what is prescriptive. In other words, what is God telling us to do? Or descriptive. There's a story. There's a lot of things that are, that, where there's tons of errors. You look at the book of Job, tons of errors being spouted by Job's friends, but they're in there for a purpose. And they get corrected if you continue to read the scripture. But if you took them individually as statements, you could use them and it would be awful. You have to know context. There's a way of studying the Bible. But we believe the Bible is inerrant and authoritative. That's the way that, that we view it. And it's important because if you move away from inerrancy, think about it. What's important about that? If we move away from inerrancy, the burden now of, of deciding what stays and what goes what's good, what's right, what's noble, what's true, what we should keep in the Bible, what we should hit the eject button on, what we find in the Bible that we don't like that doesn't fit with our current value and identity markers in life, what we've, what we, the life that we've created for ourselves. We get to decide what we take out and what we leave in. We get to decide the interpretive matrix in which we look at Scripture the burden's on us. And guess what our problem is? We're sinful. We're broken. And we need something. Be I need something beyond me that I can say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm emotional and I'm sinful. And I need a 100%. I need to lean on the word of God. I need to put this through the Jesus biblical compass and filter, not through my own. Because right now I'm angry. Well, right now, I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, and I'm a little bit hurt, and I've, I've got a little bit of a glaze over my eyes. I need something to help me navigate right now because I have a limited view where I am in life. Without the Word of God being inerrant, the burden comes back to us, and we begin to walk down that road of really building our own compass and being lost. Next, we have to determine biblical and trustworthy commentary because, again, most of us don't read the Bible alone. We got to know how to navigate that. Like, who do we? The internet's full of tons of commentary. Have you ever tried to look something up and all of a sudden you got 18 million things that come back, you know, in terms of interpreting a passage in scripture or reading commentary? If you ever study the Bible by Googling, which is not a terrible thing, but you got to know which resources to hold on to. You got to narrow the, the, the pocket. But how do you do that? And there's many ways to do that. I'm going to talk about a couple of them just right here. One, we got to test things against Scripture. So if you see a commentary and it kind of leans way outside the boundaries, you know, there's more commentary and just take, taking too many liberties with Scripture. Thessalonians 1.5 says you got to test everything. you got to test all of it. How do we get a good baseline for theology? Well, the Apostle Paul with the Corinthians, tells them, he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now that seems very simplistic, but if you think about the cross, this, this breaks up tons of theological problems. I mean, it immediately forces you to ask some really serious foundational questions about what you believe. So if we think about Christ crucified, theologically, it begins to cover the things. We have to deal with something called substitutionary atonement. What was Jesus accomplishing on the cross? Did we, were we substitute, was, was our sinful life 
in the substitute position for Jesus? Did Jesus take on our life and bring it to the cross and atone for it with his sacrifice? The answer to that question is yes. Well, there's theology that's out there that sounds Christian, that loves the words of Jesus, that loves a lot of the Bible, but doesn't like substitutionary atonement. It feels mean. It speaks of the wrath of God that stood where Jesus stood between God's wrath and our brokenness because we couldn't be in and around a holy God. Not only that, justice had to take place for our sinfulness against his holiness. Sin had to be dealt with. There had to be an atoning sacrifice, substitutionary atonement with the cross. You have to deal with it when you talk about the cross. Does God still punish our sins after redemption? All these questions come up. Why did Christ have to die? God's wrath and God's love. Think about that. How could God's wrath, the way that we see it in the Old Testament, and we, we see Jesus and we hear that God is love, how do those, how do you reconcile that? Like, how do you reconcile a broken world, the world that we live in? You've got a sovereign God that knows all this stuff is happening, and then you've got God being love, and we see loving things in Scripture, but we see it seems like they contradict one another. But guess where they don't contradict? At the cross of Jesus Christ. You see wrath. I mean, you see wrath poured out on Jesus. Blood poured out on Calvary. But guess what else you see in massive display on the cross of Jesus Christ? Love. Right there in the place where it split history, the cross of Jesus Christ. It, it creates for us a matrix in which we can ask good questions with outside resources. What do they believe about the cross and the sacrifice that took place there? His death, burial, and resurrection. That's how we begin to decide how do we dump a resource that we're looking at. If they have a low view of the sovereignty of God and, and you, the burden is more on you, I would probably lean away from that resource. If they have a low view, of, because sovereignty of God is all over Scripture. You know, if you get that sense in, in reading something that God's waiting for you or biting his nails going, you know, I sure hope that so-and-so is, you know, elected because I don't know what we're going to do if he gets in office. I mean, if that's the God that somebody's leaning you towards, then that's the wrong interpretation of Scripture because what we see in Scripture is that God is not biting his nails, that he's never surprised, that he's never looking down going, oh, no. I mean, he just isn't. But if you're reading something, if that's where it's leaning you, I'd lean away from it. Grace and in, in what is accomplished, we don't accomplish anything. We do not save ourselves. We did not make any choices that saved us. It is faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, Scripture alone. It's Him alone. He found us while we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Those are foundational things that if somebody's leaning you away from that, and it's about you, and you can stumble the wrong way, and all of a sudden, you were part of the deal, but now you're not because you earned it and then you unearned it. If you hear that type of language, great filter to hit the eject button on, a, on resources and materials. That's why we send people to Gospel Coalition. You can write them down. Gospel Coalition is a great resource for tons of theology, commentary, and references. Desiring God with John Piper, another great reference. Tim Keller, almost every book, his references on gospel and life, amazing resources that you can dive into. The next thing, in terms of reading the Bible as our foundation and as we're building and protecting our compass, we've got to remember that we're, we're doing those things through the power of the Spirit. Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul's saying that about what he'll mention in Ephesians 4. He says, I ask God, the Lord of, the, uh, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom 
and revelations so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart are opened and you may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in, the whole, in his holy people and his incomparably great power to those who believe. The Apostle Paul was always praying that they would see things beyond themselves, beyond their flesh, that they would not just read something, but they would have revelation as they read something, that they would not experience just a good church gathering, but that they would have revelation as they gathered together as the church and their eyes would be opened and that that would be the thing that would build and navigate them with their worldview and their compass. We should read the Bible in the Spirit, wanting God to give us wisdom and revelation. We want the Spirit to rule and not our flesh. And finally, the church, and it is... It is the way that the Bible was actually written. When you read the epistles specifically, they were not written to individuals to be read in your quiet time, although they're great things to read in your quiet time. The way that they were written were to be read and studied, absorbed, held in accountability with other people. That's why we say church isn't a place you attend. It's a family in which you belong. Because being shoulder to shoulder with people and studying scripture is good. Like I said before, if you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, sometimes our biblical filter could be shaded. You need other Christians to come alongside you and help you as you're studying the Bible to make sense of what you're reading. Because sometimes in my cynical heart, when I'm walking in a place of brokenness, I need a brother to go, hey man, you're seeing that one all wrong. He's objective in the moment. Because God's put him in that position for me. And I'm not because of my anger, because of my frustration, because of the pain that I'm in, because of the loss that I've experienced. It's the beautiful collective that we're in. Sometimes we read things differently just because of who we are. You've got compassionate people, like I said, people, people, and then the people that are highly organized and mission-oriented. And so I need having both of those people in concert, together, studying the Bible. There's such benefit to that as we interpret Scripture together. Ephesians was written to a group of people. It's a we. We are doing these things. We are seeing the Bible this way. We are interpreting these things. The Apostle Paul was talking to groups of people together that are studying the Bible together. Structure and leadership. He says right off the bat in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors. And we're in a culture where leadership and authority, I, I, I mean, I get way too few emails, honestly, when it comes to theology. Our elders do. We get some. I mean, you definitely get the ones like, you know, I think you're wrong about that, and that's fine. I won't, we love, that's one of my favorite things to respond to, the elders' favorite things to respond to. And sometimes we, we do get things wrong. I mean, there's often we do. We sit around and go, man, we shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have said that. But 1 Peter 5 says this about elders as they lead the church and then those that are under the authority of the church. It says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. I mean, that's an extra feather in his cap that, you know, that nobody has. Peter's going, you know, I'm an elder. Not only that, I actually... Witnessed, I walked on planet earth with Jesus and watched him die on the cross and he was raised from the dead. Verse 2, he says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. I think that's so important that 
that elders are in a position not to lord over something, not to be authority figures that are, you know, up higher than everybody else. We're all in the same boat together. In fact, the elders should be in a position that's lower, the foot washing position, the serving, eager to serve position, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples. We shouldn't be doing things as elders, pastors, and teachers that we're not holding ourselves to that same standard, being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. We love questions as a leadership structure in the church. People that would come and say, hey, this is what I'm reading. Should not, hey, you should read this. Not that I don't mind getting a book, but that's mostly what you get, I mean, as a group of elders. Hey, you guys should read this as opposed to, hey, should I read this? Should this be this, the material that I'm looking at? Is this the stuff that's going to steward my family in a good way? And some people know already. They're probably future elders because they're, they're in that position. But there should probably be more questions than directions in that. Even for the elders, we ask the same questions of each other. We ask the same questions of the people that we trust. Like, should we, hey, what do you think about this? I read this article. Even from people that we do trust. I mean, I've had people send me articles from John Piper say, hey, man, I don't necessarily agree with that. And I'm like, I don't know that I agree with it either. And that's pretty rare with John Piper. And I, you know, if he came in the room, I might change my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's probably right. Um, but that's the, that's the posture that it's talking about. Like, are we, willing to, are we willing to ask and not tell and say, is this the right thing? Is this going to help my family? Is this going to build the theological compass that we need in our church as opposed to, you know, the, it's going the other direction? There's a very broken view of authority in the church. And lastly, and I love this one in this question, how do we... We can protect our compass by being rooted in the Word of God, understanding the Word of God, using and leveraging the authority in the church to correct and rebuke and, and, and for us to learn together as a collective body the Word of God, study the Bible together. But how do we humbly use our compasses outside these walls in a world with different compasses? I was just talking to somebody between services like there are so many people with different compasses that think we're crazy as Christians that we would navigate our families this way, that we'd think about gender this way, that we would think about jobs this way, that we'd think about success this way, that we would think about what life, money this way, that we would spend our money, that we would spend our time doing the things that we're doing. They completely navigate differently. And we're almost offensive in just our existence with our Christian worldview in many ways. And we haven't even said anything yet. They just, there's a lot of assumptions around the word Christian, how Christians vote what type of ideology Christians have. How do we operate? Because we're, we're to be the ambassadors. We're the ones that are carrying the name of Jesus into the world that we live in. We are foreigners in a strange land, but we live here. We're, we're part of this culture. We're, we're placed in this culture. God's put us here to carry the word of God to our friends, to our family, to the world around us, and to the ends of the earth. How do we do that? What does it look like for us? Well, Jesus did it really well. And he made statements, and we see in, in John, John repeated them because he knew who John, he knew who Jesus was because he spent so much time with him. He's the disciple that Jesus loved. He said, For God did not send his son into the world 
to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I mean, I love John 3.16, but John 3.17 brings such clarity to the mission of Jesus. That he didn't come to condemn the world. He didn't come with a blowtorch to take everybody out. He came to stretch to the margins and lead people home. That is what he did. He was patient. And nobody's been more patient with you than Jesus has been. That doesn't, patience isn't tolerance. It's not that we're supposed to lose our bearings in Christ, but we need to be patient with the world outside of us. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, I've been, I've, I've, I'm free from any and all men, but I've made myself a slave to, to any and all that I might save some. It's a passage about his empathy, that he wanted to see things not above everybody in the pit that they were in and go, man, you guys are in trouble down there. Hopefully you can get out of there. We got a good thing going up here in the church. It's fantastic. The dark sin pit that you're in, that's going to lead you to hell. That's a bad place to be. No, the Apostle Paul was the guy that said, I'm going to jump down in the pit and I want to see things from their point of view. He literally says those words. I want to, I want to see from the moralist point of view, what they see. The immoralist point of view, I want to see what they see. From the Jews' position, the Gentiles' position, from the Greeks' position. He, he wanted to see from everybody's position in their brokenness. He wanted to understand their point of view. But he says specifically in that passage, but I do not want to lose my bearings in Christ. And I do it all for one thing, for the sake of the gospel, that I might save some. Patience, not tolerance, but patience with people. And it takes time. It is what it takes. I remember years ago, I, I was doing college ministry, and I love college students because they got energy upon energy upon energy. I mean, they, they will do things. They, they kept me up late. I mean, we would have college gatherings at my house every week with, you know, 30 to 50 kids just jammed up in my house in Riverside. And I remember they were really excited about reaching the lost in our community, you know, and just right in the urban core of Jacksonville. They're like, we're, we're right here, and this seems like a place where we could do, do some good. And they're like, we should, we should have a gathering or a church service or something that's outside of the church. People just don't go to churches. Like they, you know, they don't, that's not where they, you know, it's easier to invite people, be a part of something, have people experience God's spirit and, and worship and all that stuff in a different environment. So I said, if you get me a, a, a meeting with a club owner, with a, you know, a bar owner that has a, a venue um, in the next you know, week or so, I'll give you an iPad, brand new one. In 12 hours, I had meetings all over Riverside, college students. You got to love them. And I met with this guy, Jim, who was ultimately the guy that he, and he was openly gay, owned a, a, a bar. Some of you might have known, it was a hardcore venue called Fuel, right there in Five Points. It was there. It's Hop Tanger now, downtown. And uh, he said, yeah, you can meet here. And we, we were surprised. I was like, this just doesn't seem like somebody that would want us, want us here. He said, I don't want to be the hypocrite that I, I feel like the church has been. He goes, you can meet here just if you pay the, the, the money, just like anybody else. It's like, why would I reject you and accept all these other acts that want to come here? You can pay for it and use our sound and our equipment and do what everybody else does. And I was like, pretty good point. So we jumped in and started doing gatherings at Fuel. He said, now, I just want to let you know, it's going to be like everybody else. They have to, the bar is going to be open. We serve drinks. We do our normal stuff. You know, the venue's all yours. You do what you want, but you got to use our sound and light people. You got to use our kind of production deal. You guys you're, take your own musicians, do your own thing. We're like, great, we'll pay them, you know, good, and we'll treat them good while we're here. And our original plan was to do this, like, super lightweight, seeker-sensitive gathering where we kind of were, you know, we made it 
feel super safe and didn't say anything challenging, didn't do anything challenging, made sure the worship songs weren't, you know, too, you know, over the top or whatever. And about two weeks before we, we, were, we were praying, it was like God told us all, that is garbage. Like, don't do that. Go in and do what, what you've, you've been gifted to do. Go worship like the people of God would worship. Open the word of God with truth like you would open the word of God with truth for your people and the people that are there and leave the rest to me. And we're like, all right, which made us all kind of nervous. We didn't know it was going to happen in a hardcore venue. And not to mention that, they would they put on this little sign outside and they advertised Thursday nights, or it was Tuesday nights, River City Church, and then they had big letters at the bottom, $1 PBRs. So we were the $1 PBR church for a long time. And there would be a bunch of guys. Every, every night we did, we did our gathering at Fuel, there'd be like a whole bunch of guys and gals up at the bar with the bartender, Brandon, who I got to know really well. And they'd be sitting there just pounding $1 PBRs. And they didn't really, they didn't read the signs. They had no idea. Like, this is, somebody's in there jamming, man. There's the bands, you know, doing their thing. And then they, they, I remember when they just started noticing, like, dude, did he just say Jesus? Is this are they singing about Jesus over there? And then over time, they all started leaning in and listening and watching from the bar as they ordered drink after drink. And you, you, you would be blown away at the conversations of life, the existential questions of where did we come from? Why are we here? and Where are we going? It was every week. And I remember Leslie Walsh, who's on our staff, she would, she would run lyrics almost every week there. She'd get in the conversation. Brandon, who was the bartender, who eventually became a Christian, it was a beautiful story. He would get in the, in, the, in the conversation. But the coolest thing, and I'll end here, the coolest thing that happened while we were there, it lasted for almost exactly one year. And then Jim lost his lease, went back to the owner. They wanted to either sell the place or um, have it you know, built out to be something else. Now it's Hoptinger. Um, but he sat down with us and told us, hey, we loved having you here. This has nothing to do with you. We lost our lease. Fuel's going away and something else is going to end up there. So we had to do our last gathering and, and say goodbye. But on the night that that all happened, um, and this happened every week. So we would gather there um, and do a full-on church service, praise, worship, open the word of God, do our thing. And then afterwards, we would go next door. To, he had a restaurant called Raglan's. Had, you know, like it used to be one of the, the largest set of beer taps in, in that area. I think uh, there's a gastro pub that has more now, just because you need that information. Um, but we went, we would go next door and, you know, just eat there. Be, you know, 80, 90 of us in this restaurant pack it out Tuesday night. And I remember the, when we started there, there was a girl named Ellen that, that um, tended bar. She was openly gay too. And she hated us. Like, I mean, just her face <laughs> watching her tin bar when we would all kind of pile in there on Tuesday. A bunch of Christian people coming in. Hey, how are you doing? You know, and she's like, oh gosh, you know, in Riverside. I mean, just, it just, I mean, if you know that area, that culture, you could see why she would frown. And then we, we went in there and then fast forward. I just want to give you the picture and not tell you all too much of the, the rest of the story. But when we were leaving, it was our last night there. Um, I caught her eye and I'd gotten to know her pretty well over a year. She comes, slowly walks over to me and just gives me the biggest bear hug you could possibly imagine and just starts crying, like just bawling her eyes out. And then she grabs me by the shoulders and looks me in the eyes. And she says, Derek, she said, you guys changed my mind in what I think about church people. She said, I've, we've never been tipped so much, loved so much, and treated so well. She said, everybody fought 
to work on Tuesday nights. Everybody wanted to work these nights because you guys were kinder to us. We made more money than we've ever made on a Tuesday night since the inception of Raglan's. And I just want to thank you for representing something that we had no idea existed. And that's where it ended. I don't have some amazing story of Ellen coming to faith and becoming a Christian because that was kind of the end of our story. But I knew we were putting a stake in the ground of what it means to take your compass, not sacrifice a single thing in your biblical point of view in the gospel that saved my soul and redeemed me, but with patience and love, over-the-top love and generosity, change the hearts and the minds of the people that are outside these walls. It's what we want to do as a church. It's what God's called us to do. It's way different than what people think. And if you're lost and you're looking today, trying to figure something out, Jesus knows that you're here and he's not here to condemn you. He's here to lead you home because he loves you. He loves you and wants to meet you right where you are. Let's stand. God, we love you. We say, come Holy Spirit, just come, just move through this space. Open our heart and our mind to things that we've never thought of when it comes to your word. Lead us into the way everlasting, to eternal things, and not to our own flesh, not to the things that we want, but the things that you want for us. Just come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name.